The past is a funny old place. I mean, it doesn't exist anymore. It once was, but now it's gone. The recent past, our lifetimes, is filled with memory of things we've done, the people we met, the pains and joys of our lives before today. And so, in some respects, the past is just a place of memory. But the past is also the realm of all those who came before us. People who lived their lives, had children, sang songs, who laughed and who cried and who did things and then they passed on. The past is the realm of where we come from. And by we, I mean us, as families, as communities, as nations and as cultures. At times the past is something we're utterly oblivious to. For example, with very few exceptions, if you were to ask someone what the names of the great-grandparents were, they would probably not know. We do not care to remember such things, it seems. Paradoxically, however, we get very concerned about the past. We dislike our nation's history being insulted. And there are a multitude of people who find their identity is born from their own, usually flawed, understanding of the past. And thus the past is revealed as the most unimportant ephemeral aspect of our lives, while simultaneously being the source of strength, pride and identity for who we are. In the years 1135 and 1136, London had to come to terms with its past. The shadows of what went before them, echoes of the residents who had walked its streets during the times of long-dead kings named Edgar and Ethelred and Edmund, came back to haunt the community. And quite by accident, underlying passions, long dormant in the city, were awoken, hidden, Historical currents, like the ones that flow below the surface of the River Thames and which make it so deadly today, were about to engulf London. And out of nowhere, unbidden and surprising awe, the city was to find itself doing something it had not done in many generations. Hi. My name is Saul and you are listening to The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to simply telling the tale of this amazing city, from its earliest days until modern times. We have reached the year 1135, England is ruled by the powerful king, Henry I, the last son of William the Conqueror. It is a stable nation, it is a peaceful nation, and it was about to become an utterly chaotic nation. And over the next few years, London's relationship with the nation around it was to drastically change. And one of the most important and awful aspects of this, the city's dark age, was about to begin. We now enter a time in English history known to all as the Anarchy. And the story of how London fit into this narrative is at times surprising, bewildering, and also very bloody. Welcome then to the opening salvos of this most chaotic era, and to chapter 62 of the story. Welcome then to the King of London.
By 1135, King Henry I was nearly universally beloved by his contemporaries, a, quote, Rex Pacificus, unquote, a king of peace, who towered over England's politics like a colossus. He was known to have achieved this due to his uncanny ability to turn potential rivals into close allies, and was exceptionally talented at developing what the historian Hollister calls, quote, good personal relationships as a political art, unquote. And Henry did this while simultaneously displaying the traits of a harsh, stern, and at times brutal monarch. Or in other words, he was kind of an ideal medieval king. And yet, in 1135, this ideal medieval king was facing an issue that was causing him great vexation, and that issue was his daughter and his son-in-law. Dowager Empress Matilda, the one surviving legitimate child of the king, had had a troubled relationship with her much younger husband, Geoffrey of Anjou. They had almost separated, it seems, but had reconciled. They'd managed to produce a few children. And Geoffrey seems to have been emboldened by his new relationship with his older wife. Young Geoffrey demanded his father-in-law hand over to him a number of frontier castles, promised to him in the diary of Matilda. Henry refused, and given Geoffrey's rather well-known belligerent nature, conflict raised its head. King Henry had also had received intelligence at the time, which suggested some of the nobles living near the border were getting restless and looking to engage in that perennial Norman noble pastime. Let's stage a rebellion. And so the king decided to relocate himself to the southern end of Normandy. King Henry decided to quickly move to preempt any disruptions to his peaceful kingdom. He summoned one of the potential rebels of the region to his court, and when that man refused, Henry seized his lands and said noble went over to Geoffrey of Anjou. Henry took several castles, and Odoric Vitalis, the chronicler of the time, says that Henry, quote, prowled, unquote, the southern border of his lands, looking for trouble and scaring off his son-in-law's ambitious tendencies. What we see here is the image of a man who, while now in his sixties, was alert, vigorous and energetic. In late November 1135, Henry retired to a hunting lodge, which was basically a small fortified castle called Leon la Florette, to engage in his most beloved of pastimes hunting. Now, Henry I loved hunting. Apparently, his nickname at the time was Stagsfoot. His love of hunting actually ended up creating a whole series of environmental policies, it seems. English forests under his reign grew to nearly their maximum extent ever, and he even went so far as to order those, quote, who had land near the bounds of the forest to mutilate their dogs so they could not hunt the deer, unquote. The king was still clearly displaying the tremendous energy of his youth, and so after a good day's hunt, he ordered his huntsman to prepare for another hunt the next day. And according to the contemporary chronicler of the time, Henry of Huntington, that evening after his hunt, the king supposedly dined on a very large dish of lampreys, a dish he was said to be extraordinarily fond of but which Henry of Huntington said had often caused the king gastrointestinal ailments. He claimed they had, quote, always disagreed with him, unquote. Lampreys were seen as a troublesome food, you see, 
according to medical ideas at the time. Why? Well, based on the humoral theories of medical practitioners, physicians thought that lampreys were, quote, cold and moist in the fourth degree, unquote, and posed a, quote, humoral threat, unquote, and that could only be countered with spices such as black pepper, quote, which is extremely hot and dry, unquote. They were also incorrectly assumed to be poisonous, and this idea just came from the fact that they basically resembled snakes. However, please note, the idea that lampreys were poisonous kind of made them even more popular with the nobility in a manner that's only psychologically comparable to the modern-day consumption of deadly Japanese blowfish. After his meal, on the evening of November 25th, 1135, King Henry suddenly took ill during the night, quickly developing a chill, convulsions, fever, and a heavy sweating. The suddenness of this healthy king's illness was utterly unexpected, and over the next several days his condition continued to deteriorate. Soon, even Henry was aware that he was dying. He performed the last rites with Archbishop Hugh of the nearby settlement of Rouen and conducted the final affairs of his reign, freeing prisoners, allowing exiles to return home and determining the location of his several resting places. The nobles around him made conflicting claims about the king's feelings and statements on the royal succession during this period, with some swearing he had vouchsafed the throne to his daughter and was sticking by it, while others claimed that he wished to pass it on to his nephew Stephen. While these may have been things said later with the benefit of hindsight, they do paint a picture of a once forceful and assertive monarch suddenly struck down and acting in a confused and contradictory manner on his deathbed. Henry's illness had come on so quickly that, according to one historian, quote, the leading contenders in the succession were dispersed, and uncertainty about the future only served to heighten the tension of an interregnum, unquote. Now, traditionally, history blames the lampreys. The problem with doing that, it wasn't them. Lamprey poisoning, usually caused by not cooking them properly, has known symptoms which include nausea, vomiting, violent diarrhea, abdominal pain and weakness and then it passes. These were not the symptoms Henry displayed. This means that some have said that maybe he was poisoned but it does seem rather far-fetched at this time. The best theory as to the cause of King Henry's death for me was given by a US Army medical doctor called Matthew Turner, who also appears to happen to be somewhat inclined towards historical pursuits, it seems, and who penned an awesome paper where he concluded that the most probable cause of death was a strafococcal enterotoxin, which can cause, well, toxic shock syndromes in severe cases. The most probable strafococcal enterotoxin was listeria, a foodborne bacterium that even today accounts for up to nearly 28% of all foodborne disease fatalities. The stone fortress of Leon de Foret was likely cold and damp in November 1135, providing optimal conditions for listeria growth, and its poisoning often manifests itself with central nervous system infection, which would involve headache, vomiting, fever, and malaise. In the words of Dr. Turner, quote, the very same malaise that may have convinced Henry that his death was imminent, unquote. Henry's daughter, Matilda, 
actually had enough time to rush to her father's side and to secure inheritance, but the feud between them meant she hesitated. By the time she realised her mistake, it was already too late. King Henry I died on December the 1st, 1135, and as per tradition for medieval kings, his entrails were buried in Notre Dame de Pure, and his body was to be buried at Reading Abbey, but it wouldn't reach there until January 4th, 1136. Henry of Huntington dryly claimed that King Henry's corpse had such a, quote, strong, prevalent stench, unquote, that it actually killed the man who'd been hired to remove the king's brain. The chronicler noted with grim humour that the unfortunate man, quote, was the last of many whom King Henry had put to death, unquote. That rather smug little joke is actually not strictly true. Because if King Henry I can be given blame for anything, it was that his policy in Normandy and in regards to his succession were to cause many more deaths. In chapter 58 of the Story of London, I went on in detail about the impact of the White Ship disaster, and it is here and it is now that that impact begins to be felt. At this moment in time, the king was dead, and we enter an actual period of real anarchy. Henry of Huntington says, quote, Every man now seeks to plunder the goods of others. The Normans abandon themselves to robbery and pillage. Greedy brigands rush out, ready for evil, unquote. There was an immediate absence of control. As I described in chapter 59, England and Normandy were under the same ruler, and the late King Henry had decreed that his daughter, Matilda, should rule both after he died. But the sudden nature of his death caused any plans he had had made to fall apart instantly. And while, of course, we are going to focus on England and London for this chapter, we do need to look at ground zero of this chaos, Normandy. Quickly, it became apparent that as news of the king's illness and then death spread, none of the Norman lords gave two figs about Matilda's claim. Not one. Everyone immediately turned to the other branch of William the Conqueror's dynasty to find people to be in charge. And this branch was the one that came from William the Conqueror's daughter, who had married the original crusader captain runaway Stephen of Bois. I've mentioned over the last few chapters several members of that dynasty, but one name I have not mentioned was Stephen of Bois's eldest son, a nephew to the king, Theobald of Bois. Theobald at this time was a recognised count, a leader with a proven track record, and a man of means. Quickly, the noble lords of Normandy gathered together and decided that if anyone should rule Normandy, it should be Theobald. Theobald of Bois was invited to become the new Duke of Normandy. But what of England, the most precious of these Norman holdings? Theobald's eldest son had not focused upon that part of the realm as much as he possibly could have, what with estates and lands here in Normandy. But his younger brother, Stephen, had. Stephen had become one of England's principal land magnates and a famed loyal man of his uncle the king. Stephen had swore an oath before God to support his cousin Matilda's claim to the throne. What then of Stephen? Stephen of Bois knew by now the true rules of succession in England. No, it wasn't actually based on primogeniture, despite what anybody says. And based on what we've seen, especially since William the Conqueror had taken the throne, 
Succession had always been contested, but what both King William II and King Henry I had shown is that as long as you could follow the new rules, you were guaranteed to be king. And what were the new rules of succession in England? The first rule, act quickly, act fast. If Harold Godwinson had shown how important moving fast was, something we covered all the way back in chapter 47, then it was a lesson Henry I himself had shown, which we did in chapter 56. Act fast, act boldly. The second rule, secure Winchester. This was crucial. This was the first thing Henry I had done in his succession. And this was what William II and kings as far back as Harold Harefoot had all understood. Winchester was not the capital of England. There wasn't one at this time. But it was a major royal centre. And crucially, this is where the kings of England kept their treasury. As we'd been seeing since the reign of Harold Harefoot. He who controls the royal treasury usually controls England. The third rule, have a coronation. The importance of a fast coronation when you are seizing the throne cannot be ignored. Harold Godwinson had set the official land speed record with his coup, seeing a coronation taking place within 24 hours of the previous king dying. Henry I had taken a much more, well, relaxed three days. So simply put, Stephen needed to get the Archbishop of Canterbury to stick a crown on his head, preferably in Westminster, as even William the Conqueror had insisted on being crowned there. But if he was going to be crowned in Westminster, that meant Stephen had to pay close attention to the fourth rule. And the fourth rule was secure London, the largest population centre in England. No, not the capital, but it was the wealthiest community, the place that tradition dictated would make or break kings. London was the key to Stephen's ambitions, and so... With his big brother Theobald claiming and seemingly gaining the Duchy of Normandy, Stephen realised that in order to get the more precious throne of England, he needed to act fast. And so he did. In this, Stephen had one big advantage over everyone else. He was, by marriage, now the Count of Boulogne. And Boulogne was many things. One, it was a port, which London did lots of trade with. But two, it was a port and surrounding little ports filled with bold captains, fast ships, and men willing to take a chance if the weather was dangerous. And the weather that December was dangerous. Storms and high December winds made a channel crossing challenging, to say the least. One of the reasons the procession that was taking the king's body back to be buried in Reading Abbey didn't get there until the January of the next year was because they had to wait out the bad weather. This was not a sea one took a chance with. But, as I said, Stephen was in haste. He supposedly found a captain willing to risk the bad weather, and with a small retinue, as speed was more important than size, sailed from the port of Wissant and made the overnight crossing to England. William of Malmesbury claims that when Stephen arrived, the sky was filled with thunder and lightning and a storm was breaking. And while many would see this as an ominous sign to Stephen, this was a blessing. It meant that he was here first, and any others following him would have to wait. He moved with absolute celerity. At first, however, he was thwarted. He was refused entry to Dover and then to Canterbury, mostly because if he was here to claim he was king, then there was an immediate obstacle in his way. His fellow great magnate of England, Robert the Earl of Gloucester, the late King Henry's oldest surviving son. Unfortunately, he was illegitimate and thus based on long-held English tradition and belief, 
utterly ineligible for the throne. Robert may not have been able to be king, but he sure as hell was not going to allow it go to the clearly oath-broken Stephen. Stephen may have been somewhat daunted by failing to get into Canterbury, but that didn't dissuade him in his actions. And boldly, he rode to London. And here, the reaction was explosive. Why? Well, understand, Stephen coming to the city informed the citizens of two things immediately. One, King Henry was dead. And two, well, they don't see no Matilda anywhere, but they do see Stephen. And London actually had reasons to be favourably disposed towards Stephen, especially if he turned up saying, I'd like to be king. He was the Count of Boulogne, as we said, which meant that he could offer London some nice trade concessions. But the evidence suggests he was more than just a powerful count. In the years previously, he'd become a notable figure in King Henry's regime. But crucially, his marriage into the family of the Count of Boulogne also meant he possessed something else. He'd picked up from his wife's estates property in London. He owned a soak of London and a court therein. Stephen wasn't some stranger to the Londoners. He was a soak owner. To the emerging oligarchs and city fathers of that city, Stephen was one of them. And so the whole relationship was different from the get-go. And the city quickly welcomed him within their walls and began some intense negotiations. Stephen wanted to be king. To do that, he needed the support of London. What would it take for him to secure it? A council was summoned, which according to the Gestae Stefani, was attended by, quote, the elders and those most shrewd in council, unquote. By all accounts, hard bargaining took place. London knew what Stephen wanted. There before him lay Westminster and the chance of coronation. What could he offer them? Trade concessions from Boulogne? Hardly likely they'd for settle for such a low price. Stephen had no army to force his will upon them. So now what have you got? Well, it is from this moment that the theory stems that I mentioned last chapter that the Charter of Henry I was actually a charter given to London by Stephen, which London later backdated. And that theory starts at this moment. For some, the Charter was what Stephen offered to London to get their support, and this is why they did eventually support him. And taken alone, that theory could be viable. But as we covered last chapter, it seems very likely that Henry I had given London that charter for various reasons, which scuppers the theory, because it begs the question, if London already had that deal, if, as I said, Henry I had probably granted a charter towards the end of his reign to keep London on board with his regime, what on earth could Stephen offer the city of London? Well, it seems to have offered them a couple of things. Now, the exact promises he gave, no, I do not know. I wasn't there, and nothing was written down formally. So what I believe, and what I'm offering to you, dear listener, is just my theory, based upon all the available evidence, and shaped by the opinions of better historians than I. But in a nutshell, Stephen seems to have offered London the right to be recognised as a commune, as the commune of London. London was finally 
suddenly a true power unto itself. As a commune, London was nominally independent. Included in that recognition was something else. As the historian Christopher Brooks suggests, Stephen acknowledged the city's, quote, peculiar right to choose a king, unquote. As I've been covering in this podcast since the start of the reign of King Ethelred and going back to oblique references I was making all the way back in as early as chapter 21, London had begun displaying, for good reason it must be said, a growing spirit of independence in its past, born out of uh, frustration at political eptitude, betrayal by parasitical nobility, and an, an apocalyptically driven religious fervour. All of these things had seen London emerge as a vocal and militant faction within England. It had defied foreign invaders, often alone, as it did when being the only place in Britain to drive off King's Fen Folkbeard in 993, or when it defeated the Yom's Vikings in 1009. And I covered how from this had emerged a bloody-minded stubbornness and a sense of manifest destiny. And this is why the city had stood by King Ethelred come what may. And why the city had chosen King Edmund Ironsides alone to be King of England. In response to this incredible defiance and willingness to choose the Kings of England, what had we seen? Well, the two great invaders of England, Canute of Denmark and William of Normandy, had placed their own forms of strict protection upon the city. And still, this did not stop London or its ferocious spirit from impacting even upon those who moved there. As I covered in chapter 39, the regime of Harold Harefoot had been chosen by the Liesmen, the fleet of London. And this spirit had infected uh, the storer of London, Ansgar, to be the man who, in the face of the collapse of the Anglo-Danish usurper, Harold Godwinson, had insisted Edgar the Aetherling become King of England. And it is now, it appears, in the cold months of December 1135, this peculiar right was recognised as an established privilege by Stephen. London could choose their king, and London was to be recognised as a commune. The citizens of London called an assembly, during which they proclaimed Stephen of Bois, King of England. How passionate would that meeting have been? A large mass of men of London kept warm with thick clothes, but perhaps impassioned words delivered to them also. The regime of Stephen of Bois had formally begun here, now in London. This being said, technically, this was the only place in the kingdom who supported him at this exact moment. A situation we'd only seen twice before, with London doing the same for Edmund Ironsides and Edgar Aetherling. And for all practical intents and purposes, at this exact moment here in December 1135, Stephen was technically only the King of London. But King of London he had been declared. The city swore an oath to Stephen to aid him in what was to come with both resources and protection. And it was an oath they were to hold, it should be noted. As we've seen, and as Ethelred and Ironsides had discovered all those years before, when London gets behind you, they get properly behind you. Now I will say, 
If you happen to be a listener who's listened to the story of London in one go, me repeating all of this could well be a moment of you going, hey, I, I just heard you say that. But from my point of view, these are themes I raised some months ago, and I seek only to remind the listener that the purpose of the story is to craft the narrative. And this is one of the great themes of the early saga of London. When you study the history of England, the year 1066 becomes, for good or for bad, a natural full stop in the narrative. The great themes of Anglo-Saxon England run headlong into the brutality of the Norman conquest and occupation, and great indeed were the changes upon England during this time, so it's perfectly acceptable for historians to look at the history of England as being one where the only matters here in 1135 were born out of the event starting in 1066. But when you look at the history of London and focus upon London, then 1066 does not appear as a full stop in its narrative. At best, it's a semicolon. Because as I hope I have shown, the same themes which shaped London in past times now come back to haunt it. There is no clear difference in behaviours except for the names and languages of the king. In fact, one can draw direct parallels between London under William of Normandy and Canute of Denmark. Indeed, before this episode ends, I intend to show you proof of this made very real, of how events in London that took place before the reign of Edward the Confessor would make a direct impact upon the reality of London here and now, and how that old London of the time before Canute would get mixed up with the events of the later Norman occupation and the current religious passions felt within London. But I'll come to that. First, I just need to tell the next part of this chapter's principal narrative. Stephen was King of London. How the hell did he secure the title of King of England? Well, having obeyed the first rule of succession by moving quickly, and obeyed the fourth rule of succession by securing London, he now only had to do two things. So he acted on the second rule of succession and rode to Winchester. By now, Stephen had a small but growing band of supporting knights with him. His cause was gaining popularity, and rode direct to the site of the Royal Treasury. Winchester was, like I said, not the capital of England, but at this point it could be described as London's principal rival for the role. Here, however, Stephen had another ace up his sleeve. The Bishop of Winchester at this time was his other brother, the youngest, Henry of Bois, Bishop of Winchester. Bishop Henry came out to meet his brother and offered him his support at once. Two major officials of the late Henry I, the Bishop of Salisbury and William Pontiac, offered Stephen the keys to the treasury. And like that, he'd fulfilled the second rule. All that was left was the final one. And for that, he needed the Archbishop of Canterbury. Said Archbishop at the time was a man called William of Corbeil, and he was a politic man of caution. He would not be rushed. He would need to be persuaded. After all, had not Stephen of Bois and all the nobility of England swore to uphold the claim of Matilda upon an oath to God himself? Stephen and his growing supporters were quick in response. They reported that Henry had changed his mind. And it is here that the actions of a baron from East Anglia, a man called Hugh Begod, become crucial. Begod swore before the archbishop, alongside two other unnamed witnesses, that Henry I had said in front of them as he lay dying on his deathbed that he had changed his wishes in regards to the succession of the throne of England, that he regretted choosing Matilda, that he had only done so because of the threat posed by the claim of William Clinto, and with him dead, 
He no longer wanted Geoffrey and Matilda to take the throne. Henry had chosen Stephen as his heir. Was the claim true or not? Actually, it matters not really. Hubie God was technically not there on the day Henry died, but he was there as he sickened. Others later claimed what Hugh had said they'd also heard, including the Archbishop of Rouen. But God also never profited from Stephen for making this accusation. No deal had been struck with the new king and no reward forthcoming, so he had no incentive to lie. And I've just got to add, at a later hearing before the Pope himself to contest the validity of this very testimony of Hubie God, even the followers of Matilda never actually claimed the testimony was inaccurate. Only that Hubie God wasn't present at the very last moment of the king's life, implying that, hey, maybe Henry did change his mind and say Stephen should be king. But, you know, he could have changed his mind back before the end. But God's oath as to what he heard was enough. And the Archbishop of Canterbury was convinced and so agreed to crown Stephen. And therefore, on Sunday, the 22nd day of December, 1135, in Westminster, the crown of the King of England was placed upon the head of Stephen of Bois, and the King of London now had a whole nation. What is often misunderstood about the anarchy is that after the initial chaos of Henry's death, things found a peaceful equilibrium really quickly. From the years 1035 until around 1038, Stephen was formerly Stephen I of England, recognised king by all. Yes, it could be argued he'd usurped the throne, but also argued that he didn't usurp it whatsoever. But whatever the case, Stephen was in charge of the nation, and London could have hoped it was facing a long and possibly strong reign. But if you remember I said there's a moment that shows how the past and the present were clashing with one another. Well, to find the proof of this... We, dear listener, just have to go all the way back to chapter 31. In that rather dry account of the development of the internal structures of self-governments of the city, long-term listeners may remember that in the heart of the Anglo-Saxon account of London, I go on about a bunch of men known as the Knit, C-N-I-H-T, the Knit of London which some believe is the old English origin of the term knight, but at the time probably meant retainer or servant. And way back then, these Kinnets of London were a class of men whose full-time profession was to be a resident agent or retainer of some powerful, richer non-resident of the town. Maybe they ran his household or estate in London, or maybe they were just employed to be in London in case their employer ever needed someone to do stuff for them. Their main role was representing someone who wasn't always there but usually ran a large building or a soak. And as I pointed out at the time, these men earned wealth from this and apparently banded together for mutual support and friendship. The Snitters may have started as a social club or paramilitary group and they seem to have been able to consolidate their positions to work together for their own mutual benefit. And one of these groupings, well, documents suggested they had started to exercise authority and to gain land and privileges within the city for themselves, going as far back as the reign as King Edgar, and ultimately gained the right to run a soak of worthless land just outside of the city of London. They effectively owned the soak and retained the power to collect fines, 
ties and obligations within it, usually a role only held by much more powerful land magnates. It appears that this group of men who identified with one another based upon their jobs and titles were able to pool their resources for their own mutual benefit. These Snitter's property seems to have been located mostly outside to the northeast corner of the city, which now, in 1135, had become the ward of Port Soken. And we're back to the Port Soken issue I mentioned last episode. It appears that in 1120, for example, the great-grandsons or great-great-grandsons of those original Snitters had become some of the most powerful men in the city. Moneyers, goldsmiths, an alderman, one was one of the canons of St. Paul's. Those 13 original retainers and servants had used their hard-fought privileges back in far Anglo-Saxon times to build up their families so they eventually became part of the London status quo and their descendants had decided to grant this soak to Holy Trinity Priory in Aldgate. And eventually this led to said Holy Trinity Priory gaining control over St. Bartolf without Allgate. And then that led to the rector of the nearby chapel of St. Peter's and Chains to begin litigation claiming that actually there was a counterclaim to this soak. And here is where the port soaking issue gets really meaty because London's residents, now with the king of their choice, who had been accepted as king of England, now sought the crown's ruling on this matter. And so, in and around 1136, the port soaking debate came before the new King of England. And by now the issue had escalated, because not only was the Prior of Holy Trinity Priory leading one side, by now the Constable of the Tower of London, Lord de Mandeville, was contesting the other. And how this ended up with the King, by the way, was a reminder of just how small London was back then. Apparently, the Prior of Holy Trinity asked King Stephen's wife if she could facilitate it, and she spoke to the King, and here we are. The two sides presented their cases. Holy Trinity produced witnesses that swore that the Priory owned their claim legitimately, as a soak had been given by men who had a claim all the way back to the Chitten Guild of Anglo-Saxon times. This was a legacy of an era long before the Norman Conquest, a ghost of the last time London was a power unto itself, returning like a spectre to haunt these legal proceedings. De Mandeville's case rested on possession brought about by King Stephen's grandfather. William the Conqueror had taken England and subjugated London, and its subjugation had in no small part been facilitated by the first Lord de Mandeville, Geoffrey, the first warden of the White Tower of London, a man who had overseen its construction. Across England, Norman knights and lords had removed the lands and holdings of Anglo-Saxon Saints, creating a new hegemonic class of Norman barons and landowners who had been the bedrock of the reigns of the next three kings of England. By this authority, he claimed, the soak of Port Soken belonged to him. And so King Stephen heard the case. In the presence of the new Justice of London, a man called Andrew Bukinti, a canon of St. Paul's, and whom, under the new charter granted by Henry I, was the justicar of this event. And with those two listened a group of new aldermen of London and other prominent city figures. At its heart, the issue of Port Soken was about legacy. Whose legacy 
had the most legitimacy. And King Stephen ruled in the favour of Holy Trinity Priory. Those ancient claims gained by Anglo-Saxons had won and the port soaking issue was resolved. The Priory had achieved victory. It was over for now. But the aftermath of this debate was to raise its head again in the next few years. As we look over London in 1136, we see now a city where it appears identical to how it appeared in 1134. The buildings have not changed. There was rebuilding after the Pentecost fire, sure, but the people are the same people. The weather remains consistent. All is exactly how it was. And yet politically, London had just been seemingly irrevocably transformed. It had gone from the city it had been to a city reborn, renewed, unfettered. In actions that seemed to take everyone by surprise, so swift was their coming, that not only was a new king upon the throne, one who they chose, not only had they a charter that gave them massive independence from the crown, not only did it now pay half the taxes of the crown it used to, it was now a commune. An independent, self-governing community whose tradition for choosing the kings of England now seems to have become enshrined. They had just chosen a new king of London and the whole nation had meekly complied with it. Wow! What could possibly go wrong? What could indeed? Okay, that's it. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Uh, We're now in the heart of the anarchy, so things are about to start getting really crazy. If you can, make a contribution to the Buy Me A Coffee fund we have going. That will help me keep the uh, podcast going for another week. If you can't do that, um, you can leave a nice comment or a five-star review or something, which impresses the algorithms that keep podcasts alive, really. And I'd like to thank everybody who's done generous jacks like I've just described your Support is genuinely appreciated. All right, enough of me. I'm moving on. The anarchy awaits. Things are about to get really crazy. See you anon.